We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Welcome to From Beneath the Hollywood Sign. If you love old movies, Hollywood history, or the golden age of filmmaking, you've come to the right place. This is the podcast that talks about amazing stories of Tinseltown from another era and fascinating conversations with writer-producer Steve Kubine and actress-writer Nan McNamara. So Steve, did Ava Gardner and Howard Hughes have a good relationship? Well, they did until he dislocated her jaw. What? Well, don't worry. She hit him back with an ashtray. From Beneath the Hollywood Sign is the gin joint for you. Welcome, everyone, to the Most Notorious Podcast. I'm Eric Rivenis. Hope you're having a marvelous week so far. A quick reminder, for episodes free of sponsor breaks, you can subscribe to Most Notorious Plus on Apple Podcasts or become a patron at patreon.com slash mostnotorious. On to the interview. With me here today is Jeffrey D. Simon. He is an internationally recognized author, lecturer, and consultant on terrorism and political violence. He taught at UCLA for 20 years and is the author of several books on terrorism, including The Alphabet Bomber, A Lone Wolf Terrorist Ahead of His Time, and America's Forgotten Terrorists, The Rise and Fall of the Galleonists. His latest book came out in January of this year, and it is called The Bulldog Detective, William J. Flynn and America's First War Against the Mafia, Spies, and Terrorists. Great to have you on the show. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. Yes. So you write that William Flynn is a detective who was really famous in his day, but largely forgotten now. Why is that? That's a great question, which I couldn't resolve with certainty. I mean, he was a rock star law enforcement official detective in the early 1900s up until about 1920. His name was always in the newspapers. There were profiles written about him. There were movies made in terms of where, like silent serials, where he he, uh, had a big part in writing about some of his exploits. And then he's basically outside of a small circle of historians and very few others, he has basically been forgotten. And I think maybe what happened as time went on, he was overshadowed by some of his contemporaries, such as J. Edgar Hoover, who, as we know, you know, became director of the Federal Bureau of Investigation and held that job for quite a long time. William J. Burns, who was a competitor of Flynn's and who formed the Burns Detective Agency. There was A. Mitchell Palmer, who was the attorney general in the Palmer race. So there were all these kind of larger-than-life figures, including Flynn. But I just think Flynn kind of fell by the wayside as history, as time went on and books and articles were written, which is why it was gratifying for me to sort of rediscover him. You know, I knew a little about him from the book I wrote about the Gallianists because he was instrumental in going after them. And I had written an article also about uh, the Wall Street bombing a number of years ago. And I realized Flynn is an interesting character. Maybe there's more to him than just the one part in history that he played in terms of investigating terrorism. And then to my surprise, I learned he had such a major part in going after the mafia and going after German spies, being for a short time a deputy police commissioner at the New York Police Department, the NYPD. I said, wow, you know, this may really be an interesting book. But as every writer knows, you then have to determine, are you going to have enough information 
to write 80 to 100,000 words. And luckily, there was so much written about him in the newspapers, primary sources that um, he was responsible for, and various periodicals, and also from the archives, I found lots of valuable material. So then I said, okay, I'm going to do this. And then one thing led to another, and I was just fascinated as I was doing this research to say, oh, wow, he did this, he did that, and a very interesting story about his life and times. Yeah. One of the many impressive things about him was his adaptability. He worked for a number of different law enforcement organizations, tackling a wide variety of cases. Right. Well, see, what he always... He grew up uh, in New York. His father was a butcher. He was an immigrant from Ireland. His mother was born in New York. And Flynn had to quit school when he was 15 years old because his father had died and he had to support his five other siblings. So he got all kinds of different jobs. He was a tinsmith, a stone carver. He actually for a while was a semi-professional baseball player, which is hard to believe if you look at the cover of the book, you realize he weighed almost 300 pounds. Uh, he looked like a Orson Welles, the famous uh, actor and director years ago. He was just a really big man. And he also was a plumber. And he actually built a very successful plumbing business in his 20s. But his dream was to be a Secret Service agent. So when he applied, they said to him, well, look, you know, our job is going after counterfeiters. Now, many of your listeners probably know this. The Secret Service was created in 1865 actually right around the time of Lincoln's assassination, but not to protect presidents. Their job was to go after counterfeiting because after the Civil War, about a third of the currency in the United States was counterfeit. So they told Flynn, look, you want to work for us, learn about counterfeiting. And the best place to do that is get a job as a keeper, that's sort of like a warden in this place called the Ludlow Street Jail in New York City, where in addition to uh, debtors and other criminal and other and there's some common criminals. Federal criminals were held before either trial or being sentenced, and that included counterfeiters. So he got the job there. He befriended a lot of the counterfeiters. He learned their methods. He learned uh, their techniques, and then he went back to the Secret Service, applied for the job, and he got his job. So his initial years were spent with the Secret Service, going after counterfeiters. And in terms of his resume. He was with the he was the head of the New York Division, basically it was the Eastern Division, the New York Office of the Secret Service from 1901 to 1910. He joined the Secret Service in 1897. Then for a brief time, he was Deputy Police Commissioner of NYPD. Then from 1912 to 1917, he was Chief of the Secret Service, the top job there. Then for a year or two, he was head of a place called the Railroad Administration, dealing with thefts and sabotage. And then from 1919 to 1921, he was director of the Bureau of Investigation, which was the forerunner of the FBI. So just listening to that resume, plus that he was quoted all the time in the newspapers, makes it all the more amazing that he's basically forgotten today. Right. Yeah. Yeah, he's, he's a big, big guy. There have been, though, first basemen in the 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 history of baseball who who have carried some extra weight. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but as time went on, he kept he, he ate a lot and uh but um but what's interesting is that picture on the cover of my book uh, it comes from the Library of Congress, but the publisher, their designer did a great job in as you can see they put a little black box around his image and his whole fa um, whole body, and he looks like he's walking right out of um, you know the of the book, you know, like he's proceeding. It's pretty amazing. And he looks like he's either going to or coming from the racetrack, right? That is so amazing that you said that because I was asked in one interview, "What is in the back of his pocket?" <laughs> and I said, I think it's a racing form because he liked the horses and uh, it just it just looks like it, doesn't it? So I couldn't, <laughs> yeah. figure out, couldn't determine exactly what it is, but uh, it's one of the few pictures, actually the only one I found where he's smiling. You know, all his other pictures, uh, he, he's, pretty, he's pretty serious. Right. So yeah, let's go to his days working for the Secret Service, rooting out counterfeiters. 
One of the first cases he was assigned to, it was to find someone called the Sausage Man. Actually, that was the beginning where he started getting promoted. He, he then got sent to the Pittsburgh office and was head of that, and then got back to New York. We became head of the New York office. But the Sausage case was the, the, these counterfeit $2 bills uh, were showing up around um, both, I think, in the New York area and in Pittsburgh, and they were very greasy. You know, they were very cheaply made. And what turned out is that the perpetrator, who was never caught, the Secret Service could never catch this guy, would take the bills, which he knew he didn't produce very well, and that if he just handed it to somebody, they could feel it greasy, and they would say, oh, God, this is counterfeit. So he would go into these butcher shops and want, you know, order sausage, but not like linked sausage. The sausage is where they have to really stuff it. And so the butcher had to get his hands all greasy. So his hands are greasy. And then the counterfeiter gives him the denomination and he'll get real change back. And he wasn't uh, ever caught. So it was kind of a Flynn and some other Secret Service agents were casing out butcher shops. And uh, Flynn made a joke about it saying some of these other agents were as big and heavy as I was. And boy, if it got into the news that you know, four or five secret, hefty Secret Service agents are casing out sausage places, you know, people would laugh. Right. <laughs> so he cut his teeth on some really fascinating cases as a young man. But eventually... Yeah, there was one, one, other case, you know, one other case was interesting also. It was just coins. It was like uh, counterfeit nickels. So this was where a counterfeiter would give news uh, boys five cents for a one penny newspaper and he'd get four real pennies in exchange. And he kept doing this all around town where he started accumulating, you know, real money. So they got a description from the newsboys that it was a one armed man. So Flynn and the other detectives were searching for like a one armed man, just like the fugitive, you know, the TV show and the movie. And uh, they eventually were able to catch him. So, you know, some of these exploits in the beginning, uh, you look back upon it, would just seem, you know, kind of humorous, you know, and, and trivial. But the counterfeiting was the serious problem in those days. Right. And it was the Morello Lupo gang that really turned it into an industry, right? The, the counterfeiting racket. Well, that's what got him into going after the mafia. And basically, you know, he and the Secret Service kind of launching this this really first war against the mafia because they were so organized in New York, and they also had association and branches across the country. Well, Giuseppe Morello, his nickname was the Clutch Hand. You know, all the mafia mafia also have these you know real interesting nicknames. He had a deformed right hand, and so he's called the Clutch Hand. He came over uh, from Sicily. Uh, in the late 1890s, uh, I'm sorry, the early 1890s, and also joining him in New York was Ignacio Lupo, called Lupo the Wolf. Now, what Lupo and Morello did, the Morello-Lupo gang, was create a lot of extortion, kidnappings, and murders. The extortion was what was called black hand letters. These would be letters that they would send to wealthy Italian merchants in Little Italy and New York with an open black hand. Sometimes the hand was uh, holding a dagger, a knife, or some kind of weapon. And it basically say, pay or die. You pay us the money and we'll let you continue your business or else we'll blow up your business or we'll kidnap your children or we'll kill you. And those who didn't pay oftentimes did get killed. One stable owner who refused to pay up found his horses poisoned. So they were really ruthless and they were doing this extortion and murders. But the Secret Service task was not to go after murders and extortionists. That wasn't their function. But because Morello and Lupo was very heavy involved in counterfeiting, that gave Flynn and the Secret Service the you know uh, right to go after them. And among all the murders that the Morello-Lupo gang was involved in, was one of the most famous at the time. It was called the Barrel Mystery, the Barrel Mystery Murder. What happened was Morello and some others of his gang were arrested for counterfeiting, but 
Flynn could never get enough evidence for anything to hold up in court. And so the charges were dismissed, but Morello believed that one of the members who was arrested had cooperated with Flynn. Now, the person who cooperated was sent to prison for some other crime, but Morello wanted to kill the, you know, the person who was cooperating as a message to everybody else, you know, you obey me. So they couldn't get to the person they believed and they knew had cooperated. So they lured one of his relatives, a brother-in-law, who was also associated with some of the mafia activities to New York, and they killed him. But to show that, you know, they, they should be feared, they left the body in a barrel in the middle of New York. And this is something similar to crime and terrorism. People tend to get desensitized when the same type of crimes or the same type of terrorist acts are occurring week after week or month after month. You have to do something different, either kill more people or do a new technique to get attention. So leaving a body that the head almost cut off in the middle of the streets of New York caught everybody's attention, actually across the country. Now, Flynn had been doing surveillance over Morello Lupo the night of the murder. They didn't see the murder occur, but they knew that the person who was in the barrel was the person who was with Morello that night. But again, they were arrested. There was not enough evidence. So Morello, Lupo, and others were released. Now, at this time, a very brave New York policeman enters the story, and his name was Joseph Petrosino. He was as dedicated as Flynn to wanting to bring down the Morello Lupo gang, but again, they just couldn't find the evidence. Now, Petrosino became very famous in his own right, and in 1910, the New York police commissioner at that time sent him on a secret mission to Italy to do three things. Try to get evidence of whether Morello Lupo was involved, but also to get records of all Italian criminals, anybody who was incarcerated in Italy and then came to the U.S. because then you could deport them if they had been in the U.S. less than three years. The second mission was to get the records of all the more dangerous Italians who were in prisons in Sicily. So if they ever got out, they could be stopped at Ellis Island and not enter the U.S. And the third was to kind of create a uh, spy network in Italy where the NYPD would get information about what was going on with the mafia over there. But only a few weeks into his mission, uh, Petrosino was assassinated. Morello Lupo got word of his mission, and they had one of, his, one of their associates in Italy kill him. Now, this was very big news, of course, in the U.S. He had one of the largest funerals in New York. And Flynn, of course, was very upset by this. He liked, Morel, uh, he liked uh, Petrosino. They were friends. So Flynn was even more dedicated now to bringing down this you know, Morello and Lupo. Now, one of the reasons Flynn is called the bulldog is because of his persistence. He persisted after any crime, you know, never giving up. And here's a quote when he was asked, you know, what's your philosophy on fighting crime, fighting mafia, and so forth? He said, quote, steady hammering. That's my doctrine and advice. It doesn't do to drop a case under pressure of a new matter. Reserve a place for it in the back of the head. Think of it. Hammer away at it. Here a little, there a little, until the men you are after are either apprehended or dead. So he continued since 1904, when the Barrow murder took place, to try to get evidence for the Morello-Lupo gang. And now, after Petrosino's murder, Morello and Lupo started to increase their counterfeit activity. And Flynn now went after them again. This time he said, look, I'm going to arrest this gang, and maybe I'll be able to get somebody to talk. That was a problem. Nobody ever wanted to bring evidence against them. But there was one person that was arrested in this latest roundup in 1910, whose name was Antonio Comito. Now, Flynn found out that Comito really was forced into working with Morello Lupo, and he couldn't escape working for them. They told him, you try to get away from us from our counterfeiting operation, we're going to kill you and kill your wife. So Flynn knew, well, maybe, maybe you know, Comito will give state evidence. And Camito said, yes, absolutely. I don't like them. I want to put them away. I want my freedom. So in exchange you know, for immunity, 
he agreed to testify. So that's the good news for Flynn. He finally got somebody in this mafia ring to testify. The bad news was what the you know nickname of Camito uh, was. You know, it wasn't Camito the tiger, Camito the killer. It was Camito the sheep because he was a timid, timid individual. So Flynn now was worried. My God, you know, is he going to hold up in court when he's testifying? Because Morello and Lupo will be giving him death signs and all that. But he came through, you know, like a lion. It was almost like Camito the lion. He gave details on their operations. He gave details on other aspects of their activities. And there was other um, witnesses that did come forward and testify. So Morello and Lupo and members of their organization were convicted. And what's interesting here is the judge in the case gave Morello 25 years in prison and Lupo 30 years, which of course, you know, was unheard of for counterfeiting, but he knew the judge of all their other activities. So that was part of the punishment. Now, when Morello was given the sentence, he stood up in front of the judge. And when he heard 25 years, he just went into convulsions and he fainted and he had to be carried out of the courtroom. Lupo, when he heard his sentence, started crying like a baby. So the next day, the newspapers published, you know, these stories, the descriptions, which really, you know, for a very brief time at least, demystified, you know, the image of the you know, powerful mafia. So this was a huge victory for Flynn because Flynn was being given credit for bringing down, you know, this first mafia family in New York, and many believed, uh, you know, in the country, although there were other mafia families in different locations, but he became basically uh, starting to build his legend as this uh, superstar national uh, law enforcement figure. Then he wanted a new challenge, so the New York Police Department wanted somebody to sort of reform the department, sort of shake it up. Uh, there was some corruption going on. There were old timers who were given their job uh, just through, you know, graft and through favoritism. So Flynn joined as a deputy commissioner and tried to reform the detective bureau. He abolished all the detective bureaus in the city and put all these detectives under his command. He fired, not fired, but he, he put the old timers back on uniform and he hired just all these young, active, eager beaver plainclothesmen. And for a while, it was going very well, but there were entrenched interests in the higher ups in the department. And eventually, Flynn just said, you know, enough's enough. And he quit the job and he basically called it a, a thankless job. So he goes back, this is like 1912 now, to the Secret Service as head of the New York office. That's what his job had been before. And then by December of 1912, he was offered the job of top dog, chief of the U.S. Secret Service. This was his dream. But Flynn, and this is really kind of funny, was a true blue New Yorker. He loved New York and he didn't want to leave New York. So he said to the Treasury Secretary at the time, uh, the Secret Service was under the command of the Treasury Department. He said, look, I'd love to have that job but I don't want to leave New York. Can you move the headquarters of the Secret Service to New York? And they said, no, we can't. You know, part of our job now is protecting presidents. So Flint took the job at a lower salary, paid his own way when he had to go to Washington, but served as the chief of the U.S. Secret Service from 1912 to 1917. And at this time, this, the second part of his legacy uh, unfolds and that was his going after German spies. We will be right back. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industry shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Hi, 
I'm Matt Albers, host of the Pirate History Podcast. The men and women of the golden age of piracy are some of the most infamous and often misunderstood characters in all of human history. You know their names. Captain Morgan, Anne Bonny, Henry Avery, Mary Reed, Captain Kidd, Blackbeard. But do you know their stories, their real stories? Every week over on the Pirate History Podcast, we explore the real lives of these pirates. We examine what made these pirates sail the high seas in search of plunder and adventure and revenge. The real stories are a lot more complex and a lot more interesting than the stories most of us have been told. If you'd like to hear the stories of the real men and women who went on the account and sailed under the black flag... Join us on the Pirate History Podcast. And we have returned. So it was in 1901, soon after the assassination of President McKinley, that the Secret Service really started taking the job of protecting the president seriously. And when Theodore Roosevelt would later come to New York City, it was Flynn who was assigned to him. Oh, yes, absolutely. And uh, I have a picture in the book where he's protecting Roosevelt uh, during a dedication at the University of Chicago. So, you know, Flynn's responsibilities sometimes went beyond even New York. He would also be protecting um, foreign dignitaries. Um, One photo in the book that uh, really kind of amused me is he's protecting the Russian delegation during the Russo-Japanese peace talks that occurred in uh, New Hampshire. And there's a picture of Flynn in a white hat walking with the Russian delegation uh, in in the streets. And one of the members of the delegation is looking down in his hand. And if you didn't know it, you'd think he was looking at a cell phone, (laughs) even in 1904. (laughs) So I kind of point that out, you know, in the book. So, oh, yeah, Flynn, he has the counterfeiting, protecting presidents, protecting foreign dignitaries and going after the counterfeiters. And um, so that was in those uh, early uh, 1900s. Yeah. In that short time, when he was deputy police commissioner, uh, between 1910 and 1911 or so, he got to to focus on murder cases. And one of those, well, it it was likely a murder, but but her body was never found. Uh, The disappearance of Dorothy Arnold. That was a fascinating sort of a tragic case and she hasn't been found to today it was um i think she was like 25 years old uh she came from a very wealthy family and one day she walks almost through manhattan she's going to go to a department store and a bookstore and a couple of her friends see her uh, they talk with her she goes into the bookstore and that's the last they saw of her and she just disappeared and the family did not want to publicize this. They thought, um, you know, they don't know what happened. Did she run away or whatever? And Flynn finally convinced them to put it into the newspapers. And then it became one of the most famous searches of that time where people were saying, you know, we saw her here, we saw her there, but they just don't know what happened. One theory is that she might have been murdered in Central Park and the body never found. But this was broad daylight um, there were, would have been witnesses as she was walking you know, through New York or through the park. So it became sort of the mystery of Dorothy Arnold. And because she was you know, an attractive young debutante, uh, it got a lot of attention. And Flynn you know, it was something he regretted that he couldn't solve it, but it just wasn't, wasn't to be. Right, right. He became disillusioned in part with his position. He thought he would be promoted to police commissioner, and then he learned that wouldn't happen, right? Exactly. And also, he thought his mission, again, he wanted to reform the detective bureau and go after various uh, murders and things along those lines. But the police commissioner and his boss at that time sent him more on gambling raids, and that's something he felt was not necessary. He didn't need to use his expertise to break down gambling houses. But there is sort of an interesting anecdote of one of his um, exploits into trying to um, arrest these gamblers. He told 
13 of his detectives meet me at the 50th Street subway station, and we're going to go raid a gambling house. I'm not going to tell you yet where it is. I want to keep everything secret. You know, I don't want anything leaked. So they are gathered around this 50th Street station, and Flynn drives up. He opens the trunk of his car, and he gives each of these big, you know, he has these now young Eber Beaver, but tough-looking detectives, a crowbar and a hatchet. And he says, okay, it's four blocks down this way. So through midtown Manhattan on a clear day, we got 13 tough-looking NYPD detectives carrying crowbars and hatchets. And, you know, people seeing them would know, are these thugs or what's going on? But Flynn made lots of progress against gamblers. And, again, the, the media loved Flynn. So they were writing up what, how he's saving the NYPD. He's doing so many great things. And so it was a surprise when he left. But as he told a reporter, it's just a thankless job because I'm not doing what I set out to do. But when he went back to the Secret Service and got promoted to become chief, his next legend unfolded. And this was around 1914, World War I broke out. And we didn't enter into 1917. But the Germans set up a spy and intelligence network in New York, because that was sort of the center of foreign intrigue at that time, not Washington, D.C. And the head of the whole operation was an individual named Dr. Hundred Frederick Albert, Dr. Albert. And he was the commercial attache at the German embassy. Also involved was Franz, Franz von Papen, who was a military attache at the embassy, who was directing many of the subversive activities, which eventually became attacks on ships carrying supplies to Britain and other allies, strikes at docks and ammunition plants. So at one point, President Wilson wanted to know what was really going on with the Germans. I want evidence of their intrigue, of their sabotage, of their propaganda. And so even though this wasn't the Secret Service's task, you know, they were to go after counterfeiters, he knew they were the best you know, detectives around, along with the NYPD. But he asked the Treasury Secretary to go have the Secret Service tail uh, the Germans, find out what's going on. So Flynn created a 11-man counter-espionage, counterintelligence unit, and they started following around people that they felt were suspicious or may have contacts with the Germans who were doing the sabotage and doing the intrigue. The man he put in charge of this, Flynn, was his most trusted aide named Frank Burke. One day, Burke is in his office, and he gets a call from one of the members of the team saying, you know, one of the guys we follow around, who is a German-American who was head of a, um, who, who ran a newspaper called The Fatherland, which was a pro-German uh, newspaper, they were following him around New York, and they saw him go into a building. So the one of the members of the team called Burke and said, you know, why don't you join me? Because let's see what he does when he comes out of this building. So Burke joins uh, the other member of the team, and they see the individual come out with another German who they didn't recognize. It turns out it was Albert, Dr. Frederick Albert. And they see this man very well-dressed carrying a briefcase, and they're wondering, God, who is this and what's in that briefcase? They follow uh, the propagandist who's in charge of the newspaper, and Dr. Albert onto an L train, an elevated train that was going uptown. And when the propagandist left at one station, one of the members of uh, Flynn's team continued to follow him. And Burke remained on the subway train looking at Albert, trying to figure out, remember, do I know who this is? Uh, uh, he just, he looks too uh, sophisticated uh, not to be important. I think there's maybe something in that briefcase. Turned out, when the train hit, it was 50th Street again, the 50th Street station, Albert, who had been reading a book, realizes this is a stop. And he may miss it. So he yells out to the you know, conductor, hold the door, hold the door. And he runs out. And this woman sitting next to him says, you forgot your briefcase. Meanwhile, Burke snatches the briefcase, telling her, no, no, it's my briefcase. And he gets out on the platform. Albert's trying to get back in. The woman says, hey, somebody took your briefcase. And now Albert is looking frantically on the platform, which is crowded, for who has my briefcase. Burke makes it down to the street. Albert goes into the street looking around, and he sees somebody walking away with his briefcase. He recognizes his briefcase. 
and he starts running after him, you know, yelling, stop. Burke runs away. So we got this scene in New York of a Secret Service agent being chased by a German diplomat spy. So Burke keeps running. He hops on a streetcar, you know, like a trolley car, and he tells the conductor, look, you see that crazy man running down the street? And Albert was waving his hands, screaming, you know, stop, stop. He said to the conductor, that man created a commotion. He's crazy. He's going to do the same thing on your streetcar. Keep going. Don't stop. So they continued. They didn't stop. And then Bert gets off the streetcar and he calls Flynn. Flynn drives up. They look at the briefcase. They open it up. And even though it was in German and they didn't know German, they could see this is really important. They see documents and they see figures. And then when it got translated, they realized that this was the whole documentation of the German operation. Uh, Albert was in charge of a $27 million budget for the propaganda, for the sabotage and so forth. So the Secret Service leaked the whole report. They gave I mean, all the documents to the New York world and under the condition that they do not say it came from the Secret Service. At that point, they didn't want a diplomatic furor going on where uh, the, a government agency took the belongings of a German diplomat. But eventually, it did become known that the Secret Service was responsible and it became one of the most celebrated uh, counter-espionage, counter-intelligence uh, feats in Secret Service history. It, it awakened the public to what the Germans were up to. And then uh, in 1917, we joined the war and we're at war with Germany. So Flynn, after he, he leaves the Secret Service in 1917, and he writes screenplays about his exploits, and his fame now is at its height. There are movies made, serial made. It was called The Eagle's Eye. He wrote a book about it. And for a while, it was very popular, critically acclaimed silent films. But around 1918, there was the pandemic, just like you know, we had a few years ago. And movie theaters were closed. So the film was not a financial success. But for Flynn's legacy, it just put him to the top. And uh, he was written about all the time. Wow. What ultimately happened to Dr. Elbert? Interesting. He was not uh, expelled. Von Papen was and others were and could not find out the reason why he was not expelled. But they just left him uh, you know, with the embassy, obviously kept watching him. And then when uh, World War uh, I broke out, he went back to, um, right back to Germany. Huh. So- yeah. So, I mean, yeah, Albert was, um, you know, Flynn, I have a quote in the book where um, he said, you know, this Albert was just brilliant. He, he was a brilliant, uh, you know, diplomat spy. And uh, but none of them got in trouble. Actually, von Papen, when he went back to Italy, uh, became chancellor for a while. And uh, Albert became a successful businessman. So, uh, you know, the, the, the Germans weren't uh, upset with them, you know, for, for being found out. Right. Yeah. So, so- Which is always uh, interesting. Yeah. So at the height of his popularity, he is in motion pictures, he's writing, and he is considered to be the greatest anarchist expert yes. in the United States. Yeah. Well, the person who said that was A. Mitchell Palmer. Even though uh, Flynn's legacy was, you know, some anarchists were involved in counterfeiting, but he, he, you know, his whole career wasn't just you know chasing anarchists. But what happened was in 1919. And, you know, we talk about terrorism today, and people don't realize that year was some of the most uh, horrific terrorism that we experienced, and, and, and people were really concerned and, and worried about it. The Gallianis, who were very violent, militant members of this Italian anarchist group that was named after their leader, Luigi Galliani, launched a terrorist campaign in the United States. The U.S. was going to deport Galliani, who was a very charismatic, very educated, spellbinding you know, speaker and leader of the group. They were going to deport him. So in 1919, before they could do that, the Gallianis issued circulars around New York and New England saying, you know, deport him, deport us. We're going to dynamite you. So as the deportation date came close in 
uh, June of 1919, two months before the end of April, the Galliana sent package bombs across the country. These were very cleverly designed uh, dynamite bombs, miniature uh, bombs put into packages that looked like gifts from Gimbo's department store. That was a famous department store at that time. And they sent it, or they thought they were sent 30 of these to, one was to A. Mitchell Palmer, one was to members, people in the FBI, there were governors there, anybody they felt, you know, were after them as a group. What happened, and the way the bomb was designed is that when the unsuspecting person opened the package thinking it's a gift, and they opened the lid of this cylinder, you know, it would explode. And uh, 14 of their 30 packages got passed through the New York Post Office. One exploded at a former senator's wife, severely injuring her and the maid. Others also got through. And 16, though, never left the post office because the Galeanas didn't put enough postage on the packages. They miscalculated. It wasn't because they were cheap. They just thought this was the sufficient uh, postage. So this young postal worker who had seen the packages that didn't have enough postage and put them in the basement of the post office was taking a train back home that night. And in those days, newspapers came out at midnight and he bought a midnight edition, which covered news of that day. And as he's reading it, he sees, wow, a bomb went off at a former senator's wife's house. It was a packet. Oh my God, this, these are the packages that are in the post office in the basement. So he rushes back to the post office, tells his superiors about it. They get the bomb squad to look at the packages. And indeed, they found these sophisticated bombs. So, of course, this is headline news, you know, 30 packages, you know, 16 get sent across the country. And people were kind of in shock. You know, they said, wow, you know, we've never seen something like this before. Then the second shoe fell. June 2nd, 1919, the Gallianas, this time not sending package bombs, they left bombs that went off in set nine cities, seven bombs in nine cities. I'm sorry, nine bombs in seven cities. And among them was a bomb that went off right at the home of A. Mitchell Palmer, the attorney general. And there was just no security at that time. It's hard to believe that today. So the bomb exploded. Uh, Palmer was not injured, although the house was damaged. But the terrorist was killed. And uh, they gathered evidence and eventually was able to determine it was uh, a man who was a close aide of Galliani. So Palmer appoints Flynn to be the new uh, director of the Bureau investigation. That's when he says, I'm putting in charge of this investigation, the greatest anarchist chaser in the country. So again, Flynn comes into office with great expectations. The public saying he's going to find you know these perpetrators. And I mean, Flynn basically had to organize uh, a whole bunch of um, federal and local law enforcement agencies. He uh, created, you know, different uh, units, a great cooperation with each of the different places and gathering the evidence. This is the first case where you're sort of doing simultaneous investigations in many different locations before it used to be just one locale. So. Flynn really has a tough job at hand. And, you know, they, they arrest various people, but they were never able to, again, get anything to stick. But what happened was two of the Gallianas, who he did arrest and held in detention, basically at Bureau Investigation Headquarters in New York, kind of confessed to things they did. And the other Gallianas found out about that. So more of them went underground, more of them fled. So eventually... Uh, the cases were not totally solved, although everybody knew and the consensus was that Italian anarchists were responsible for these bombings. Now, there was a lull in these attacks and in terrorism for about a year, year and a half. And in terrorism, you only need one incident to sort of bring things back to square one, back to the public agenda. You know, there's never really a total end, end, quote, end of, uh, of terrorism. So on September 16, 1920, a horse-drawn carriage exploded on Wall Street. There was a bomb hidden in the carriage, killing 38 people and injuring hundreds of others. 
Now, this was the worst terrorist attack at that time. And most of the people killed were clerks, stenographers, a number of veterans from World War I were tragically killed. And the bomb went off right across the uh, street from the J.P. Morgan Bank. So it was a deadly explosion. And Flynn investigates it you know, with, the, with um, the Bureau of Investigation, but also William J. Burns, who was also a famous detective at that time and was really a competitor of Flynn. You know, the two men didn't like each other. And Burns, acting as sort of a private citizen and working for various banks and entities, uh, launched his own independent investigation, which got in the way and also undermined Flynn's. To make things worse, the business community wasn't happy, naturally, about a bomb going off in Wall Street. Terrorism wasn't good for confidence in business, confidence in security. So what the business interests did, J.P. Morgan Bank and others, was hire cleaning crews to work through the night to clean up everything. And, you know, obviously they cleaned up a lot of valuable evidence and they had signs the next day, business as usual. They wanted everybody coming back to work. So Flynn you know, had, a, had a tough job now working with the evidence that he had. And this investigation went on for you know, almost a year. Flynn started in 1920. And um, by the summer of 1921, he still hadn't been able to solve it. He knew that the Gallianists were the perpetrators. He didn't know how many who was involved. And the reason he knew they were the uh, the perpetrators was that leaflets that were left at the site of the bombing were very similar to the leaflets that the uh, Gallianists had left before the June 2nd bombing. And it talked about, uh, you know, we're going to bomb you, the anarchist fighters of America. One of them were called the... Uh, Fighters of America is very similar wordings in these leaflets. But to this day, the perpetrator of this horrific attack has never been filed. Most contemporary observers and a lot of historians, myself included, believe it was Mario Buda who was one of the last remaining members of the Gallianist. And he was their expert bomb maker. And it's believed that he set off this bomb as one last you know, blow against America, and then he escaped to Italy. So Flynn, by the summer of 1921, had not been able to solve this crime, and he was forced out of the Bureau investigation. And he was basically ingloriously dumped, and it was a real sad period for Flynn. So he figured, you know, I'm always called back to government. I'll get called at some point, but for a while, I'll form my own private detective agency and you know to make a living and he did that but it wasn't really successful uh his children uh they were two children he put in charge of it had drinking problems they uh were rude to the clients and the detective agency went under uh you know pretty soon but what didn't go under and was very successful was a detective magazine that Flynn found that he called Flynn's and it went under different names as time went on, but it became the most famous fiction and nonfiction detective magazine uh, of that time. It lasted maybe 30, 40 years. And Flynn said in his first few issues, you know, I don't care if you're a known writer or, you know, a uh, somebody just starting out. If you have a good story to tell, if it's a great yarn, a great fiction story, send it to us. If you're involved in some exploits in law enforcement, send it to us. We want to publish good, exciting mysteries and you know stories. So one of the people, one of the writers who took him up on that was this young mystery writer who was only a few years into her career, and her name was Agatha Christie. So in a way, he helped give a start to Agatha Christie. The story she published, she wrote for Flynn's Magazine was titled My Trader's Heart, and years later, she revised that to call it Witness for the Prosecution, which became a very famous play and very famous movie. So Flynn was involved in all these amazing things during his life. And when he died in 1928, he died of heart disease. 
you know, he wasn't a happy man because he never got the call to come back to government. And I think this obituary in the New York World, New York Herald Tribune, really kind of sums up you know, what he meant to his organization, the Secret Service, and to the country. It said, quote, there developed a mighty legend around William J. Flynn. His activities against counterfeiters, smugglers, diplomatic enemies, bombers, and wartime food hoarders brought a halo around his name and the words Secret Service. Back after these brief messages. Serial killers, strange disappearances, unexplained mysteries, terrible disasters. I'm Nate Hale. And in my show, The Conspirators, I'm here to tell you all the stories from history your teacher never told you about. Hear the real story behind the Bermuda Triangle. Or about the history of people drinking blood to stay young. Or about the serial killer operating in Nazi-occupied Paris. Or what dark secret lurked within the walls of a Scottish castle. In my show, The Conspirators, I take you on a journey through some of the darkest corners of history, where you'll hear about the folklore, myths, and misconceptions behind some of the darkest events that ever happened. Listen to The Conspirators on Apple, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And remember, sometimes the truth really is stranger than fiction. Everybody shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. Hello, everyone. You may recognize me as Gabby from the History of Everything podcast. And my name is Brenna, and you don't recognize me from anything yet. Together, we're two scientists who explore all of the weird little questions and conspiracies of the universe in our new podcast, Mystery of Everything. Everything has an explanation. We hope. But that is what we're here to figure out. We will dive into the science behind many popular conspiracy theories, such as vaccines causing autism, flat earth theory, and was the moon landing fake? And if so, why the heck would anyone even do that? But it's not just conspiracies. There's a lot of cool mysteries that we will attempt to use science to explain, such as near-death experiences, what made the Vikings go berserk, and can I control my co-host with MK Ultra? Wait, what? <laughs> anyway, make sure to check out the Mischief Everything podcast everywhere where you find your podcasts. And back for the final time. Now, what's sad again is that very few people know about his life. And his legacy, I believe, is that he was an incorruptible public servant. He never a hint of scandal in his long career. William J. Burns, you know, his competitor, uh, had many scandals and, and many uh, crises in his life. And was also, he was forced out of the Bureau investigation. Uh, Flynn protected presidents, pursued counterfeiters. He brought to justice you know, the mafia family in New York. He uncovered the sophisticated German sabotage, spy, and propaganda campaign. He designed the first counter-terror strategy in U.S. history, edited this popular detective magazine. But, you know, there were also negatives. He supported the Palmer Raids, which were these roundups of alien radicals after the June 2nd bombings. And uh, basically, there were violations of civil liberties. And he didn't devise the Palmer Raids. The, de the person who devised it actually was J. Edgar Hoover, but Flynn supported it and didn't really speak out against it. And as I mentioned before, he's become overshadowed in history by these other historical figures. And today, really, there's no monument or statue of him anywhere. Yet, in many ways, he was as important a figure 
in American law enforcement history in the early 20th century as anybody else. So I guess, you know, my my basic concluding remarks is that he really deserves better than to be a forgotten man in history. And so that's why I feel good about the reaction I've been getting from the book, including from people in the Secret Service who said, God, we didn't know, you know, one of our you know directors in the early days had this incredible career and other people. So, um, you know, that's one of the joys when you write a book and uh, you're able really to discover somebody that has been forgotten. Oh, yeah. It must have been great to get that feedback from people in the field. So it's interesting that Hoover was responsible in large part for the Palmer raids for their failure, but he didn't take the fall for them. It was Flynn. Well, Why do you think that happened? Actually, Flynn, Flynn survived it uh, in the sense that uh, the real person who took a major force, Palmer, because it was called the Palmer Raise, and you know he also supported it. But Palmer had presidential ambitions; he was going to run, uh, you know, for the nomination. But when there was the backlash to these Palmer Raids, uh, Palmer was mainly the, the the culprit that the public felt was responsible. Hoover, you know, Hoover was a survivor. He, you know, he was a massive bureaucrat. And years later, after Flynn, you know, had been uh, deceased for a long time, a reporter said, "You know, you know, Mr. Hoover, you you're responsible for these Palmer raids, which violated civil liberties, roundups with no warrants, and uh, you know, no no uh, protection of these people's rights." And Hoover said, "Oh no, I I was just you know sort of this uh, lowly bureaucrat, and uh, it was William J. Flynn who really was responsible." So you know, Flynn didn't have any opportunity you know, to protect himself at, at that point. But uh, it, it wasn't good for Flynn, but that didn't really lead to his, you know, being forced out of the Bureau investigation. It was it was basically Burns and, and others who, you know, who wanted to seize the power. Yeah, right. You write in your book, Hoover was named as head of the radical division in the Justice Department. And among other things, he was responsible for creating a file with 200,000 names of, of radical agitators. Right. And that, of course, would become a lifelong obsession for him, creating files on anyone he suspected of anything, even remotely un-American. Yeah, he, he did that even before he became you know, direct, he, uh, head of this radical division uh, within the Bureau investigation. I mean, technically, uh, Flynn was supposed to be his boss, but uh, Hoover really was just reporting to Palmer, and Hoover sort of kind of ran his own operation. But he had all these cards and files when he was working in the Library of Congress uh, before he even got to the Bureau investigation. So, yeah, he knew the value of keeping information, and uh, he knew information was power. And you're right, that really uh, you know, started his whole, you know, the, the mindset of how I'm going to keep uh, files on, on, on people throughout the country and other countries as well. Yeah, yeah. So while Flynn was running his own detective agency, one of the more famous cases he worked on had to do with Rudolph Valentino. Right. So Rudolph Valentino was a famous silent movie star at that time, and he was in a contract dispute with his uh, his company, and the company wanted, for various reasons, to get you know some dirt on um, Valentino, and so they can use that to prevent him from breaking the contract. So they hired Flynn's agency to follow Valentino around, and it had to do with uh, a divorce and to catch. Uh, Valentino and what would be, would have been considered adultery because the divorce had not been finalized and this this whole situation they were never able to find that information but Flynn's agency was hired to uh, basically follow Valentino around and the other thing Flynn did with his agency was he was hired to protect a racehorse now it wasn't just a normal racehorse it was a racehorse that won the Kentucky Derby but when you think of Flynn's mindset, here was a guy who, you know, fought the mafia. He, he reformed, tried to reform the NYPD. He fought German spies. He fought terrorists. And now his job, you know, is, you know, getting dirt on a movie star and protecting a racehorse. So yeah, it really wasn't the, the happiest of periods uh, for Flynn. Right, right. 
in the early 1920s, he wrote a series of articles, Flynn, for the New York Herald, entitled My Ten Biggest Manhunts. What, what were some of these manhunts he, he was bragging about? Well, definitely, he, he talked about going after, you know, the Gallianist and uh, going after uh, different counterfeiters. One was called uh, Johnny Nitro. It was a uh, counterfeiter, counterfeiter who always threatened uh, he, he would blow up everybody if they you know, come near him. He went after some counterfeiters who had then uh, used uh, counterfeit English currency, and Flynn went over to Britain to testify. And the, these 10 were not necessarily his most successful or so, but Flynn knew how to uh, kind of use the media, and the media loved him. And these 10 most uh, you know, famous things he went after, he also used that in his detective magazine in the first issue where he said, uh, you know, my 25 years in the Secret Service, and he basically talked about all that time. He didn't say anything really about his years in the Bureau of Investigation because those weren't as happy or successful, you know, period of time as with the Secret Service. But uh, he had all kinds of, you know, large counterfeiters in terms of sophisticated rings like Morello Lupo and just, you know, individuals like uh, the one-armed man, you know, in uh, using the nickels for the newsboys. Yeah. Why was his name taken off of the magazine title? They There was no specific reason, uh, but they wrote in 1927, I'm sorry, 1928, shortly before he died, that we're changing the name. I don't know. My My assessment is that by the late 20s, he's just not as famous as before. So when it started in 1924, you know, called Flynn's, he was still enough in the public eye where they remember him from what he did. But by four years later, the board, you know, makes the decisions, decided uh, we're really not getting anything by using his name. So, you know, that was another kind of, you know, disappointment for him to uh, have that taken off. But now there was no scandal or nothing happened except that they believed uh, it would decrease circulation to take his name off, which probably was a mistake because it, people still knew of Flynn, just not as much. Right. So in putting this book together, you were in contact with one of his descendants, right? Yeah. You know, when I try to find information, and this is the beauty of the internet, I was tracking down anybody, maybe a descendant, and I went to, God, you know, these sites like graveyard.com or things where, you know, they would talk about, you know, who the deceased, you know, his family members. And I found somebody who looked like it was a descendant of William J. Flynn. The birth date was the same. They, actually, the date of death was the same. And I was able to get an email to this great-grandson or grandson and the person wrote back, oh, yes, you want to write a book about my grandfather? Great, great, great. And then I explained, you know, what I tend to write. He says, oh, you want the famous William J. Flynn. <laughs> That's not my grandfather. So then I said, okay, back to square one. I looked again, searched some more. And then I was able to find the actual grandson of Flynn, who was able to give me some you know, interesting photos uh, that I was able to put in the book and some anecdotes. And uh, so that was always a, an interesting experience. I'll bet. <laughs> yeah. And Did he enjoy the book? Has he told you what he thought of it? Yeah, yeah. You know, it's, um, you know, it's, I, when I write a book like that, it's not going to be, you know, a coffee table family history. It has to be, you know, objective and uh, to the point that I've kind of, you know, helped, uh, you know, resurrect Flynn in terms of his image, his legend, and so forth, uh, you, know, you know, very happy. Well, awesome. Uh, Flynn lived such an incredible life. I, I really enjoyed learning about him. So your website is futureterrorism.com, correct? Co correct. Yeah, one word, futureterrorism.com, C-O-M. Are you working on anything currently? I have an idea in mind, and um, I don't yet want to talk about it because it's not finalized. I'm coming close. So uh, 
I'll definitely let you know once I finalize it. But it's the same issue when I look to write a book on Flynn. I want to first see, is there another book written about this subject? And if so, can I figure out some different way of doing it? Am I going to have enough data, information to write an interesting, exciting story, you know, 100,000 words? So uh, I think I may have something, but I'm just not sure yet. But uh, once I do, I'll definitely let you know. Sounds great. Well, thanks again for joining me today. Oh, this has been fun. I really enjoyed it. And thanks so much for having me. Again, I have been speaking to Jeffrey D. Simon. He is the author of The Bulldog Detective, William J. Flynn in America's First War Against the Mafia, Spies, and Terrorists. This has been another episode of the Most Notorious Podcast, broadcasting to every dark and cobwebbed corner of the world. I'm Eric Rivenis, and have a safe tomorrow. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a historian, professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that provides a complete overview of U.S. history through storytelling, yet keeps the rigor you'd expect in a university class. Starting with 22-year-old George Washington in his first battle, join me for a chronological telling of the United States' story, its unlikely revolution, fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way through the progressive era. Find History That Doesn't Suck wherever you get your podcasts. The Civil War and Reconstruction was a pivotal era in American history. When a war was fought to save the Union and to free the slaves. And when the work to rebuild the nation after that war was over turned into a struggle to guarantee liberty and justice for all Americans. I'm Tracy. And I'm Rich. And we want to invite you to join us as we take an in-depth look at this pivotal era in American history. Look for the Civil War and Reconstruction wherever you find your podcasts.